Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today, we have a special episode to share in celebration of Women's History Month. At JPMorgan Chase, we had the unique opportunity to hear from Anita Hill, professor, author, lawyer, and activist for the eradication of gender-based violence. Anita spoke with Natalie Williams, general counsel for card services at JPMorgan Chase, about her story and her decision to lean into the unintended role as a voice against gender-based violence. Anita has a new book called Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. And in this episode, she refers to the data and the stories in her book with real steps that we can take to protect women in our workplaces and communities. I hope you feel as inspired as I did after this discussion. You devoted your life to fighting against gender violence. Can you give us a little bit of your journey and why you chose to lean into the situation that was thrust upon you and find your purpose? Thank you. I want to say two things first. First of all, I want to thank Stacy Friedman, your Stacy Friedman, for introducing me to you. Because were it not for her, I wouldn't be here today. I want to thank Brian and Natalie for this wonderful welcome and introduction, and for all of you for being here at this moment. I see that there are a few righteous brothers, as my friend Janetta Cole would say here today. Thank you for being here with us, and we will all learn together. Now, in law schools, you and I went to the same law schools. They teach us to give three answers to every one question, right? Today, I'm going to try to hold my answers to one. I've already broken that rule. So that was my third answer. Let me just say this. Getting to where I am now really has been a journey, and I describe it as that in the title of the book. How did I decide that I would not try to ignore the reality that I was faced with is really what it comes down to. You always have choices, but I had to decide what would be the most meaningful choice. And it started with thousands and thousands of letters that I was getting, and and literally within weeks of the hearing. People really trying to understand. On top of that, it came this idea that as someone who grew up in the 50s and the 60s, who benefited from Brown versus the Board of Education, whose parents had 13 children, and we grew up on a farm. Ten of my older siblings went to segregated schools. I realized that I was a part of a legacy of giving back and giving forward. And that I had been given the opportunity to go to law school and by that time teach lawyers. And I had the skills to understand if I worked at it, what was happening and how to answer those thousands of questions or letters that I was getting and felt that in part it was my responsibility, but also, again, that it was something that I had the opportunity to do, the chance to do, to make a difference in the world that people had already changed for me. So that's why I gave up the bookish ways of a law professor and personally very bookish ways of my own and decided that I was going to respond to what I believed then was a call. And it wasn't easy. I had great support, though. I had colleagues support me. I had incredible family support, and I still do. 
And when it all comes down to it, I had the support of many, many other strangers. That's how I got here. And that's how I stay here. Well, it's certainly inspiring, a lesson to us all. So I want to turn to your latest book, Believing, which is a deep and sobering examination of the many manifestations of gender violence throughout our society and how our institutions enable and perpetuate it. So a consistent theme throughout the book is structural and institutional denial of gender violence and the massive harm that this denial and dismissal causes. Could you elaborate a little bit on this concept and share an example of two of how this plays out in practice and perpetuates continued violence and silencing victims? Well, when you think about gender-based violence, one of the things that we don't necessarily think of, we think of an episode or an incident of violence. We think of the confirmation hearings or somebody files a complaint in court. And we assume that that's where it all starts, where there's an interaction between two people and that gives rise to a complaint. But what we don't think about is very often is that For all of our lives, we have been given messages that the kind of violence that we experience and that we know exists because we've seen it in the newspapers lately, we've been given messages, we've been given sort of assumptions, we've been given stories that tell us that either the problem isn't as big as people think it is, or they tell us that, oh, it's the victim's fault. Or they tell us that, you know, it's not so bad. The behavior that they're describing isn't so bad. And those have been part of our thinking for all of our lives. And I think people don't realize that that. So when we encounter those episodes, what we tend to do is to say, oh, it's not so bad, you know, or deny it. But it's not just that we behave in that way and we show skepticism or dismissiveness. You know, we even tell our children this. We tell them, you know, don't worry about it. Oh, or, you know, don't make a big deal out of it. We're told that in our offices. Don't make a big deal out of it. You know, why don't you just let it go? You know, that's just the way he is. We tell our children that boys will be boys. And then ultimately that kind of thinking gets built into our structures. So our complaint processes tend to have in the back of, you know, the mind, oh, well, is this really happening? You know, I start the book talking about some of the polling that was done for about 30, 40, 50 years ago now. And uh, one of the quotes is from an executive in an organization. And he says, yes, I've heard about all those things, but in my organization, none of that is happening. And then he goes on to say, you know, what I really believe is that there are people who are just making too much of this. And so that leadership is going to suggest to the people in that organization, hey, we don't have a problem. So that even if there is a problem, there's already a foregone conclusion that we can just ignore it. And that's what I'm saying. You know, it it happens. It was part of what the resistance was to my testimony in 1991. It's part of what people face now. And many times they won't come forward because they know that that's already part of the culture. It's part of the structure. And that's part of what they will have to go through to even be heard. 
And so that's what I mean by this institutional denial. And it starts with the leadership. And what I say in the book is that if it's going to change, the leadership attitude has to be changed. and It has to be intentional and vocal. Yes. So when you think about this, you know, you touch on the fact that race and gender identity, sexual orientation, they can sort of alter this dynamic and compound the harm. Can you talk a little bit about how? One of the purposes or intents behind gender-based violence is to decide who gets excluded and who belongs. And I'll give you an example of intimate partner violence. Who gets to be in control and who shouldn't be in control? And so what happens with gender-based violence is that it gets compounded by race. And we know that racism is used to decide who gets included, who gets excluded, who belongs, who doesn't belong. And I also say it also includes issues of when there is a mistake, who gets forgiven. So think about the combination of gender violence and racism. And you can even add a dash of colonialism and slavery and our own history, since we're, this is history month. And think about how those have been factors throughout our history, decide who gets in, who gets out. So that gender-based violence, uh, let's say in Black community and the Native community, is just another way of disempowering communities. It's not simply directed at someone because of their gender, it's directed at someone because of their race. So if a person is experiencing gender-based violence in the workplace and they're experiencing a woman of color, then what they're saying is not only you don't belong in this workplace, but it also says, you know, and I, by reducing you, I can affect an entire community because that sort of has this ambient experience. So if this Black woman or this Native woman or this Latinx woman can be excluded, then the message is going to be clear to others. And I think it even extends beyond women of color because it's really is, you know, you can't sort of detach from if you're a white woman you're also going to start to get the sense that maybe none of us belong here. So there is a community effect when we all these incidents or episodes happen. They affect a broad range of people. They diminish the community. They disempower the community. If somebody has to leave her job because of being harassed, it's not just going to impact her it's going to impact her family. And that also will impact the community. At the highest level, it is, you know, remember, it is purposeful behavior to diminish and detract from the significance of an individual. And that spreads. It's not just isolated to the individual. And I'll just give you one more example. When I testified in 1991, it impacted my students Deeply, deeply. Here was a person, we had developed a relationship, it was October, they were told they needed to respect me because of what I was doing and the power that I had over there. And then in 1991, in October, they were told 
I was not to be believed. I was not to be respected. I was so fortunate because my classes stood behind me. Even though there were hard days and they knew there were hard days for me, they picked up when I skipped a beat, they were there to support me. The impact is broad. And in the Black community and other communities of color, the combination of racism just makes it even harder and more profound, harder to come forward, harder to get heard, harder to be believed harder when you're believed for any action to be taken. All of those things are compounded by race in terms of the experiences. Trust me, none of us really are in a great position, but racism makes it even worse. Well, that's exactly what wonderful example of what structural racism and structural gender violence means. You know, you discussed earlier that this starts really young. This starts in our K through 12 schools. It starts with our young children and the messages they give. In the book, you talk about colleges and obviously workplaces, and you detail how sexual harassment and other forms of gender violence hasn't abated despite a plethora of legal decisions, reforms to how colleges process Title IX claims, and a proliferation of sexual harassment reporting mechanisms and trainings in our workplaces. And so one of the reasons that you cite is the fact that institutions have developed compliance-focused policies and procedures as opposed to culture-focused ones. Can you elaborate on this and tell us why the former don't work and are inadequate and the latter are crucial? First of all, it's because, I'll cut to the chase, because the worst fear that institutions have now is that their reputations will be damaged. That's what they care about. And it happens over and over. I call it the duck and cover approach and they cover up. They don't want claims because they don't want people to know because they figure they're donors or they're alums or people won't send their children to school there. They have this idea that Title IX really is there to basically protect them from liability. And what I think needs to happen, and I believe this, is that they need to understand, just like workplace institutions, that their first job is to protect basic civil rights. That's what the laws are put in place for, protect individuals who have been discriminated against. But they have sort of flipped that to saying, okay, well, instead of making sure we protect our students, We're going to do whatever we can that we think will protect our reputation. We know that the law says we have to do certain things. But the problem to them isn't that their students are being violated so much as it is that they might be damaged. So instead of doing the things that they have to do and making sure that everybody is safe, they're going to do the compliance. I think what you have to do is you've got to flip that. In the book, I write about Spotswood Robinson. And one of the things early on when sex discrimination or sexual harassment was being looked at as a violation of civil rights, one of the things that was really a concern was this balance between protecting corporations and schools and protecting victims. Well, my sense is that these victims are the core of your purpose That is why you exist as an educational institution. In terms of workplace, 
workers are the core of your operation. If you don't have them, if they're not safe, they're not going to be as productive for the corporation. And if we can just sort of move into that mentality and Spotswood Robinson, I hope you'll read it because one, most people don't even know about Spotswood Robinson and I won't get into his whole background, but he was a judge that really, I think, saved the whole concept of sexual harassment as a violation of the law. If we don't get into this mentality of protecting workers will benefit the larger institution. It's happening more now because workers are standing up. The other thing that I think is a reminder of the importance of workers and the power that we are now have is now during the pandemic, workers are saying, you know, it's running to demand more. And I think this is a good move and it's a move in the right direction. And I think some companies are responding and I think that they will continue to respond as long as we exercise our power and realize that, you know, we're all going to be better, as the research says, We're all better when we have an inclusive environment where people feel valued. Right. Well, we really believe that here at J.P. Morgan Chase. And as you say, these are not opposing ideas, protecting your employees or your students and protecting the corporation. The students and the employees are both. So turning to your journey, you know, in the wake of the Me Too movement, you became the chair of the Hollywood Commission. And you write in the book that before you took that role, you thought the ways to secure a workplace were through litigation and legislation. But your work with the commission changed that perspective. Can you tell us how so and, you know, what other strategies and tools do you find effective in combating, you know, workplace harassment? Actually, my attitude about what all it took changed before that. It changed about 20 years ago because that's when I left my law teaching job and decided I needed to know more if I was going to be effective in this work. But the Hollywood Commission work has changed. Once I was moving into what are the structural impediments to protecting people, once I got into that, then I started working with Hollywood Commission, and I realized that it was not just the formal structures that you have to look at, but it's the informal structures. Hollywood, the entertainment industry, is one of those industries that has been historically largely unregulated. So they don't even, in many cases, have compliance. <laughs> you know, they, they're all required to do compliance training, but nobody, I haven't heard anybody in the industry say that that's the greatest training I've ever had. I've really learned from Hollywood that you've got to take a deep dive and combine the culture, which, you know, Hollywood has this terrible cultural history of harassment and abuse and racism. And now you put that into a setting where so many jobs are gotten because of who you know and maybe gossip or stuff, conversations that go on the behind the scenes. You don't have any formal work evaluations that you can rebut that gossip with. Because it's so informal and who you know, we all know that typically who you know are the people who look and think like you. 
So we've had to try to get to that issue. We've had to deal with the serial nature of this behavior in Hollywood and try to change that because in Hollywood, you're not just talking about one individual in one workplace. You're usually talking about multiple workplaces when you talk about production. So there's not just one location that you can investigate. And when it comes to serial abuse, you have people moving around from location to location and doing the same bad deeds. And you don't have any way of tracking it. We're developing in the process of developing a platform to identify who those people are by allowing people to come in and and be empowered to file complaints because we've set up a way to know when someone has one or two or three violations at different locations. And so we are, we're working on that. And we're also working on the informality of it by bringing better protections to small productions that are very fluid. The workforce is very fluid. The movement of production from production company to production company, and they might have one production company that then morphs into something else. And so they're not all of these formal structures that we use typically to follow bad behavior. They don't exist in Hollywood in many cases, except for the large corporations that are the parents. But large corporations buy the product, so they have an interest in making sure that a movie made or a television show is not being a source of abuse. So that's super interesting when you think about more formal workplaces that don't have as much of an informal workforce, you know, such as ours. What are ways that or lessons that you think that we can take as sort of instructive to address efforts to eradicate gender violence? Like, are there things that from that experience with a more informal workforce that you think can apply in a place such as this? You've got to recognize those informal structures, those things that, you know, they're the way that Things systems are supposed to work. You know this in every organization. This is the way they are supposed to work, but really what we do is, and that can impact hiring, that can impact promotions, that can impact complaints when somebody comes in and says, no, I told HR about this. You've got to recognize that. We've got to also recognize the behaviors that give way to bigger violations. You know, one of the best conversations I've had since I wrote Believing and started talking about it was a conversation that I had with lawyers in New Jersey, part of their state bar, who are talking about how do we get organizations to recognize microaggressions? They're probably not in your code of conduct, but they have very often a cumulative effect that leads, you know, is enough in and of itself to impact a person's ability to do their work. And they have an effect of creating this culture in an organization that says anything goes, you know, as long as you don't just step over that point. And, you know, it's not quite sure what that point is. Maybe it's groping. As long as you don't grope. By the way, there's a court case that basically says you get one grope. As long as you don't do that, all of those things that can lead up to hostility. And for women, there is a lot, not only of sexual harassment, one third of the women, one half of the women say they experience it in their workplace, but there is also this gender harassment 
where, oh, well, you know, you can't do this because you're a woman or comments that are made that demean women that may or may not be sexual. And so we've got to start to recognize those. But we have to be really intentional. That's what's hard. You have to be intentional. You have to think about it in terms of how you're going to plan to bring in these different concepts that you haven't recognized in your code of conduct. How do you deal with bullying, for example, which can become gendered and sexual and racial and all of those things? You've got to think of this as a complex problem, not a simple problem and be intentional about solving it. And every organization has to work on the structures for themselves, see where the holes are, see where the informalities take over what you put on your book. That takes time and it takes a commitment and it takes leadership. Leadership, tone at the top, yes. So the last few years has seen the rise of the Me Too movement, as well as the Kavanaugh Supreme Court confirmation hearings, which were in many respects a redux of the process that you face. What do these events tell us about the progress that has been made since 1991 when you testified and what more needs to be done? Well, it absolutely tells us that we've got so much more work to do, so much more. We have just scratched the surface. It was a National Academies of Science report that really starts to tell us about the problem of sexual harassment in engineering, science, and medicine. And some of the stuff is really chilling. Like 80 to 90 percent of women in certain medical schools say they have been harassed in medical schools. The American Bar Association is dealing with the problem of sexual harassment in legal practices. Lawyers are doing it. All of those things are pointing to the fact that we just have a lot of work to do. But I will say this, I mean, and you put in the Kavanaugh hearing, which was just, I think the world is farther along than the Senate Judiciary Committee leadership of that time. <laughs> Honestly, I would shudder. I mean, it would just like send me to bed crying every night if I thought everybody <laughs> who was out there or, or that the Senate leadership at that hearing actually reflected the public mood. I just don't believe it did or, and nor it does. Now, does that mean that the public is really ready to do the hard work? that they need to do? I don't, not entirely, because some of it is self-examination. I'll go back to what we started with saying, you know, as individuals, as companies, and, you know, as institutions, we need to stop telling people who come in to complain that what they're complaining about isn't so bad. We know we tell it to our children. I have this story about this girl who said she experienced sexual harassment when she was a seven-year-old, and she told the teacher about it, and the teacher wouldn't let her go out to recess it because she said that she was behaving inappropriately and saying inappropriate things. But the worst thing is when we're telling young girls, oh, and this a lot of things are happening, pulling down pants, you know, bra straps, you know, all of these things, slurs, gender, defaming people, you know, girls, what's written on the boys' bathroom wall, that kinds of things that are going on in junior high schools. And still, we tell girls that a boy is behaving this way because he likes you. If we had stopped just that, stop telling people that, because what we do know about this behavior is that It is a sort of precursor to teen dating violence. And so if we could just 
stop saying boys will be boys and that's a way of showing that they like you. We can change people's minds. And changing it is important not only for girls because we're telling them not to accept this behavior as flattery, but it also changes people who might become abusers from believing that they shouldn't be held accountable for bad behavior. So you're not doing anybody a favor by not taking these things very seriously and considering what the ultimate impact will be. And there is this connection between what goes on in the elementary schools and then what goes on in high schools and what goes on in colleges and university and then what goes on into the workforce. So all of those things matter. But just think about what if we committed to changing it from the beginning? That would be really a powerful impact and that we can all participate in. And with children, especially because you know, we're parents, we're grandparents, we're aunts and our uncles, we're teachers. We can start there. I think truer words have not been spoken. So Believing makes a really compelling case that ending gender violence should be one of our nation's highest priorities. So what in practice would ending gender violence, one of our nation's highest priorities, sort of look like? Two things. And you mentioned the State of the Union address. Yes. But one of the things that I have been exploring is how do we get the parties to put it to really call this out as a crisis. It is a crisis. You know, on so many levels, 10 million people a year are affected by intimate partner violence. 10 million. A third of those people will be homeless because of the violence. Think about all the health impacts, the economic impact, the educational impact. Because, you know, there are children involved. All of those parts of our systems are being impacted. So we've got to start looking at this problem is holistically. And you can only do that in responding and providing resources for individuals if you have the power and authority of a president of the United States. And I was really happy that President Biden has said that he is going to be strengthening the Violence Against Women Act, because I believe that if we think about that very broadly, that will allow us to look at all of the different systems and stop looking at even rape and intimate partner violence as a criminal law issue. Criminal law is not going to solve that problem. We have put how many people in jail? How many black and brown people are in jail? And the problem is still happening. It hasn't been stopped. We need to figure out what are the social factors that are contributing to it, What are the social factors that need to be responded to once it happens and develop our policy around that? So providing housing, providing reform, providing educational opportunities, making sure education of children is is enabled in these instances. All of those things are possible at the highest level. So that's the beginning of what it would look like. But even just saying the words and saying that this is a crisis, acknowledging it, takes away from where we are now, where you still have people saying, oh, it's not that big a deal. Naming that problem. So we've talked about a lot of sobering, distressing, and terrible events. But I want to talk about something that gives us hope and is a moment of celebration. So we can't end this discussion without asking you about the nomination of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to the United States Supreme Court this past Friday. 
What were your thoughts on that nomination? And what do you think that Judge Jackson will add to the court? What do you predict? How do you predict you'll change the court? And why is it so important to have a Black woman on the nation's highest court? Well, for the first time in history, you know, you have a Black woman nominee. And it was done intentionally. It was stated intentionally. That is an important moment because it helps us to begin this conversation about why a diversity of perspective on the court is important. You know, we've all been, all of us lawyers have been trained to believe the law is neutral and Justice Roberts says, no, it's just like calling balls and strikes. And, you know, they don't have anything to do with your point of view or your perspective. And I was like, well, how can there be this, this division <laughs> if everybody's just calling balls and strikes? But then I realized that even if you're calling balls and strikes, you know, one umpire's ball is another one strike. <laughs> you know, the strike zone's different. And, and so that's just respect to the court doesn't make sense. <laughs> so I think, you know, what we have with Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, a Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, and we'll, you know, say it and it'll happen, right? Manifest. Is a new perspective that has never been in the court. And it rounds out some things that have existed. This is a moment where not only when you're sitting in those chambers, will their fellow jurist see her? It's like, oh, I always think, I'm smiling as I say this, it's like, oh, having somebody who doesn't look like the other people walk in the room, that in and of itself will change <laughs> what the conversation will be like. And I think, you know, she's so strong and outspoken that she will help them. Because she said, President Biden, when he introduced her, said, you know, she thinks about what the impact of the law is on people. And we've had some judges who've done that, Thurgood Marshall, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, outspoken about it. Sonia Sotomayor, outspoken. We need that voice on this court right now. Because we've got that group that says, no, no, we're just calling balls and strikes. We need her perspective. And the public needs to see themselves in the court. You know, they need to feel like, you know, if I go into this legal system that is represented by the U.S. Supreme Court, that I am going into a system that understands me, that respects me that will understand my situation. And they're going to be thinking about how the law will impact me. And so I think that there's so much potential here for the conversation inside the chambers, as well as the conversation among the public. Yes, I think so too. And I'm so excited. So I just want to end with a last question. So you've been such a powerful voice for accountability and change and equality for more than three decades now. Where do you find your hope and strength? I thought you were going to ask me if I'm ready to retire. <laughs> <laughs> not and the answer all. is <laughs> yes, but I'm not going to because the world's not ready for me to retire. But I will say this, what gives me hope, and this is going to be my short answer, the fact that I'm a teacher. It is a blessing to be a teacher because every day I get to look at the possibility of the future, the possibility for the future. And so I don't lose hope because I'm seeing my students and what they can do and what they want to do and how they see the world. And I'm learning from them. 
you know, there is this old thing that says, oh, I learn more from my students than, you know, I teach them. Well, no, I teach them more than I learn. <laughs> well, I try to anyway. I mean, it's like, who doesn't try to teach them more than you learn from them? That, that's where I'm getting paid. But I just feel really, really blessed in so many ways that I can look in the future and see change, that I can look back at my parents and my 10 siblings who who graduated from segregated schools and see change. And I know that the world is going to catch up with us. Well, I'm sure your students are inspired and find hope and inspiration from you. So before we turn to the questions, I just want to take one moment to tell you how much your testimony meant to me, because I was alive to see it in 1991 (laughs) as a young Black woman and a new lawyer. You know, in the face of so much vitriol and hostility, we just saw a glimpse of it in that trailer. You spoke your truth with dignity, clarity, and resolve. And you did that even in the face of hostility and from quarters in the Black community, right? So you had supporters, definitely. I signed that letter of Black women supporting you, but you were in many ways alone arrayed against the most powerful forces. But your example of essentially embodying Maya Angelou's Still I Rise just was so important to me and so many others in showing us that we too could live up to a challenge and live and speak our truths. So thank you so much for showing us the way. You're also an example of what gives me hope. Thank you so much. That really means a lot. So... So, Professor Hill, we could talk to you all day and it wouldn't be long enough. But thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and sharing your wisdom. And thank you just so much for who you are and all that you've done and continue to do. It's really been a true honor and pleasure to speak with you today. And thank you. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Anita Hill. It is so moving to witness her commitment to change and her belief that a world without gender-based violence is possible. I was particularly touched by how supportive her students have been throughout her career and by her remarks that they are the future and that they bring her hope. If you're interested in hearing more, please check out her podcast, Getting Even with Anita Hill, available wherever you get your podcasts. You can find a link in the show notes for this episode. I am so grateful for the opportunity to share this discussion with you, and I hope you will take action to create change. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.